Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be with you in this way, in this time. We're continuing today in our lectionary-based series that we're calling Unordinary Time. Um, I have to say for myself, being carried and held in these texts has been a refreshing experience. It's one that I've often needed uh, during this time. And I, in choosing which one to anchor in, I always read all the lectionary texts. There is an Old Testament, a Psalm, the letter. Uh, but during this time, I'm consistently being drawn to the gospel stories, to these sometimes uh, surprising, never boring, always deeply affecting encounters with Jesus. And uh, when I realized that uh, this week's text was uh, from Matthew 14 and the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I actually wondered to myself whether in 10 years I'd ever preached on that story before, and I honestly couldn't recall. So I went back to my files and it turns out I did preach on it once. Uh, it was the version from John's Gospel, not Matthew's. Uh, this story appears in all four Gospels, which is interesting to note. Um, it was early 2011, and Artisan was barely a year old. And so now we're about 10 and a half years old, coming on 11. <clears throat> and uh, that sermon was not a very good sermon, um, so <laughs> there's, which was kind of a drag because there's not much to draw from or to recycle. Um, so I'm hoping this one's better. I think it will be. Uh, this story has really gripped me in the past couple of weeks, so that's usually a good sign. Um, let's start by hearing the text together. This is Matthew 14 from 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is God's word. Um, oh man, love this story. To get us going, I, I want to share a quote by Megan Larissa Good from her great book called The Bible Unwrapped. She writes, when the gospel writers want to sum up Jesus' entire ministry, they frequently say things like this. Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom and healed every disease and sickness among the people. This kingdom, the primary topic of Jesus' parables and teachings, is shorthand for a world at peace, fully aligned with God's more beautiful design. Through his ministry, Jesus announces to people that this kingdom is close that the new world is coming soon. The healings and miracles he performs are not incidental to his message, but a demonstration of it. They're the appetizer course, the first tastes of the new world, of what reality will be when all creation is finally brought into full submission to the rule of Christ. 
Not everything is yet as it should be, but wherever people begin to gather in shared allegiance to Jesus, the first sprouts of the new world start to spring up and grow. That's a good summary, Miss Good. I love the way she articulates God's kingdom as shorthand for a world at peace. And for our purposes today, her description of healings and miracles as appetizers or first tastes of that new world. Uh, another image might be that of a movie trailer. And we know that the best movie trailers are not the ones that tell the whole story, but they give us just enough of a glimpse of what's to come. So we can't wait to see the rest. So one question we could hold uh, today is how might this ancient story offer us a preview of the world God's Spirit is bringing into being? How might this ancient story be giving us a preview of the kingdom? So let's hold that question as we walk around in this story together for the next few minutes. And today we're going to walk around in it by walking through it. We're going to go verse by verse. So verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What had happened? Well, John the Baptist had died, and John was most likely a relative of Jesus. As we know, he was the one whose task it was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry, and he died in a pretty gruesome, sick, twisted way. If you don't know that story, you can read about it in the first part of Matthew 14. Now, we're not given specifics about Jesus' emotional response to John's death. We're simply told that he withdrew to a solitary place. Now, by the way, the word withdrew shows up 11 times in Matthew's gospel, and every time Jesus is the subject of that word. And usually there's an explicit mention of prayer or being with the Father. Now, in this case, it could very well be that Jesus wanted to pray or to mourn his cousin's death, or to consider what John's death might mean for his own ministry. We don't know for sure, but whatever he was feeling in that moment, we know that he wanted to be alone with it. He craved solitude. He needed to get away. And we all get that, of course, this desire to be alone with loss or grief or to be held in it by someone you trust is a deeply human response. So that's the context. Let's continue in verse 13. Uh, it says, Hearing of this, the crowds following him followed him on foot from the towns. All Jesus wanted in that moment was to get away for a short time, to be alone, to pray, to process pain, but he couldn't. Has anyone else experienced this? Other humans just not leaving you alone. Parents, uh, I've said too much. Also consider this, friends, that Jesus sometimes had difficulty getting alone time with God. So I just want to encourage you, if you're craving moments of quietness with God, but are pulling, feeling pulled in a million directions, if you're being interrupted with significant regularity, if you're being distracted by other things that are also worthy of your time, then know this. Jesus has been there. He knows what it's like. Uh, so go easy on yourself. Verse 14. Let's read that one once more. <clears throat> when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
So Jesus' response was characteristically selfless. He didn't ignore them, didn't pretend they weren't there, didn't look down at his phone. He saw them, he had compassion on them. Remember that word splanch needzo? It's like from the spleen, it's to be moved at a gut level. He healed those who were sick, to see, to have compassion, to heal. This is a snapshot, another snapshot of what God is like. The God who continually comes to us in Christ as co-suffering love. The disciples, on the other hand, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. It's like they're saying, Yeah, Jesus, we know you care. But look at the time. Enough with the crowds. We're hungry ourselves. So these people, they've got to be hungry too. They're, they're not worth our time. Send them away. Tell them to go get themselves some dinner. Everyone will be happy. So the disciples express their wishes in no uncertain terms. And on one level, who can blame them? <laughs> we know what it's like to be tired, exhausted, and just wanting to not be needed for anything. I also wonder whether Jesus felt any sort of tug in a similar direction. Matthew gives no indication of this, but I'd understand if he did. Remember the context. He just received news that a dear friend, a cousin, had been brutally and mercilessly killed. His grief was raw, his intention was solitude, and he barely gotten out of the boat, and there were the crowds, whom he saw and was moved by, and those who were sick he made well. It's a preview. And there were his disciples, filling him in on their agenda. Well, how does Jesus respond? First part of 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Oh, just, I'm struck by how often this happens in the Gospels as well. The disciples wanting to send people away and Jesus saying, let them come. I think of episodes like the little children wanting to get close to Jesus. I think of the Canaanite woman in the very next chapter of Matthew. Almost like this is a theme. Time and again, the disciples say, send them away. And time and again, Jesus says, no, let them come. And in fact, you're going to be the sent ones. These are human beings who are very much worth our time. They're why I'm here. They don't need to leave. You feed them. You give them what they need. Uh, these days when I read examples in scripture of disciples messing things up, or I look around at people today who claim the name of Jesus but really get things wrong, myself included, I'm learning to have more empathy more patience. I'm coming to see how true it is that we often learn more from our stakes, our mistakes than our successes. And I, I don't just mean head learning. I'm talking about heart knowing, embodied knowing. I'm talking about growth into a deeper living connection with the Trinity. Richard Rohr puts it really succinctly when he says, we open to God by doing it wrong more than by doing it right. The call is to divine union more than private perfection. He calls this the way of the wound. 
which is a thread you can follow all the way through the history of Western biblical spirituality, from Moses and Job to Jesus and Paul, from Julian of Norwich to St. John of the Cross, from Simone Weil to Henry Nouwen, the way of the wound. We're in good company when we get it wrong, as well as when we suffer. So here's another question to hold um, within the context of this story. How did the disciples' misstep here in this story open them to Jesus? Verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. We have only. One translation says, all we have are. Another says, we have nothing here but quite a bit uh, a scarcity mindset. And again, kind of understandable. How is this going to happen? I mean, do the math, Jesus. Our world has huge problems and we often feel inadequate to face and address them. We want to do more. We want to give more. We want to contribute something that we know will make an impact. We take one look at the giant foreboding machine of injustice and we feel small. But scarcity is a paralyzing trap that we, just like those first disciples, are all in danger of falling into. But what if big problems essentially need big faithfulness? I love uh, that phrase that's from Oshita Moore, and she goes on to say this, maybe that foreboding machine of injustice in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our world, needs to meet the foreboding image of a woman harnessing whatever resource she has, loading it up in her slingshot and hurling, hurling it right into its spinning cogs. <laughs> what a great image. It's natural to buy into various all-we-have-are kind of scripts, this lie that we all we have won't be enough. It's easy to feel small. It's easy to think small. It's easy to dream small. But guess what, friends? Jesus loves solving problems with smallness. It's kind of his jam. Uh, again, all the time in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus reshapes people's thinking. He rewires their exhausted imaginations toward possibility, toward abundance. Toward verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed to the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Jesus redirects people's imaginations toward Eucharist, toward relationship, toward a common meal, a shared existence sustained by the generous provision of the one who made us all in the image of the Trinity. Roar again. He says, food bread in particular, seems to be used to symbolize fullness and satisfaction in God. It's God feeding us rather than us being food for God. It's God caring about our very mundane and immediate needs for daily bread. God is offering us abundance rather than mere fear-based subsistence religion, which I often call fire insurance religion. Stories like these 
remind us that the essence, the trajectory of our lived faith and practice is communion with God and unity with each other. And bread is a symbol of the ongoing feeding of that union. So a big reason we practice the table every week, even now during COVID, is that we need to be reminded regularly that union with God is at the very heart of the good news. Verse 20 and 21, they all ate and were satisfied. Again, not just their physical needs being satisfied, but this is a symbol for satisfaction, fullness with God, satisfied in God. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now, what do we think the disciples did with the leftovers? Well, they took them home to feed their families. So this isn't just Matthew saying, oh, by the way, the disciples were on cleanup. There were 12 disciples. There were 12 basketfuls. We all see this. And these numeric symbols are a huge deal in Jewish culture. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, there's more than enough for you too. I know you're hungry too. I know you're tired, but you take the surplus. I wonder how that might have opened them to Jesus, this getting it wrong and being having their imaginations re-engaged and rewired towards abundance. Friends, this is a preview of a world at peace. It's, it's Jesus' vision of the kingdom, of the new creation he's fashioning, that there's more than enough for everyone, that all would taste and see the generous love of God. What a contrast to the other feast that came right before this one, where the head of John the Baptist ended up on a serving platter. There's a sense in which we could read these two stories in Matthew 14 as a tale of two banquets. One grotesque and dehumanizing and violent and unjust. The other, a preview of the world as it ought to be, full of healing and abundance and inclusion. Okay, some invitations. Uh, the, I don't know what you're hearing in this. I'd be curious to, to know what you're hearing and what's, what's sticking with you. Um, if you want to offer something by way of text or email, I'm always curious to know what you hear. But I want to articulate a couple of invitations here. And just let me say um, autobiographically that the invitations we hear in the text just depend entirely on where we see ourselves in the narrative. So for me, I consider myself a disciple, a Jesus follower. And so by default, I tend to read the text first from a vantage point of what it means to follow Jesus. But the disciples aren't the only ones following in this little story. The crowds did as well. Matthew tells us they literally followed Jesus as he was attempting to get away. Why did they go after him? Well, with a crowd that large, it's safe to assume the reasons were many and varied. Desperation, perhaps, for some. Um, maybe curiosity, maybe deep need. The experience of physical ailment with the hope of healing, we know that there were some who were sick. Here's the thing though, to Jesus, the reasons didn't matter. No questions were asked, no prerequisites were demanded, there were no standards of holiness to meet first. I love Rachel Held Evans' reflections on this. She said, 
In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus once again addressing the most essential physical needs of his fellow human beings. Hunger, thirst, companionship, and once again, breaking down every socially constructed barrier that keeps us from eating with one another. He did the same thing when, much to the chagrin of the religious leaders, he dined with tax collectors and prostitutes and told his more well-to-do hosts that when you give a banquet, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. So take a moment and imagine yourself as part of the crowd who followed Jesus that day. Where do you need healing? Where do you need to see Jesus? Where do you need a touch from him? Where do we need healing? As a church? Where does Christianity need it? Some of the reading I've been doing recently, I realize more than ever that we need to follow Jesus into an honest reckoning with our history, into health, into wholeness, into justice. Whatever we're carrying, may we know that Jesus looks on us with compassion and invites us to the table of reconciliation and delight, of goodness and provision, to a feast of love where there's room for all. And then, as we are healed, as we meet with Jesus, we're nourished and fed, we get up from the table, may we be reminded that we indeed have something to offer to the world. So hear this invitation as well. That when you're tempted to say, all I have is, or as families or as a church, we have nothing here but, may we hear Jesus say, bring it here to me. I'm going to give... Oshida Moore, the last word, because it's just so good. So be reminded of this today. We may have big dreams and a small offering, but we follow a remarkably resourceful God.